Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And of course, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you probably know that just about every year we bring out some Lunar New Year themed content. And uh, this year, Lunar New Year fell right on a Tuesday. Yeah. So how could we say no to that? Um, Now, whether you celebrate Western New Year or that you, or you you like a good Lunar New Year or Chinese or, both. or Chinese New Year, well, I think there's always room for both celebrations because you can you can shoot for your Western New Year. You can make your various goals and uh, resolutions, and you can, you have a good month to try them out and fail at them, and then you have another shot. You can say, right. all right. Well, I'm going to go for Lunar New Year. This is going to be my new beginning because that first new beginning didn't really take off like I wanted it to. And if you feel like uh, you're early on, you've already had your year kind of infested with a lot of negative energy, you can have some exorcisms. That's right. So that is one of the things we're going to be talking about in this episode. It's this this episode. It might seem like uh, something of a of a potpourri episode, but but there there's there's definitely a, a string connecting all of these together about the exorcism of spirits, uh, the exorcism of uh, you can I mean you can even just think of them as negative emotional states and associations from your life as you head into some sort of new phase. Which is kind of at the heart of so many of our our approaches to a new year. Well, think about what most New Year's resolutions actually are. I don't have empirical evidence for this, but my gut feeling is that the majority of New Year's resolutions are to stop doing something you see as a negative presence in your life or reduce doing something you see as sort of like a demon on your back. Right. Yeah. And now there, there's been pushback against that. And a lot of people say we what we need to do, if we are going to set resolutions, in addition to making them reasonable, we should try and make them more positive. Right. Like things I am going to do. Uh, and then, of course, realizing that you need to make it attainable. I don't know. Making it attainable sounds kind of scary because then you'd have to actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then if, yeah, if you set it up too too, if you set up too much of an obstacle, if the resolution is too great, then you're just guaranteed to fail, and you're going to feel bad uh, about that anyway. What was it we said one year in the past? We uh, we decided the best New Year's resolution is that every year you should decide you're going to live forever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. I, I might as well, right? Uh, so I, I, we do have to point out that. This new year, there's a lot of enthusiasm for the uh, the, the ideas, the teachings of uh, Marie Kondo. Oh, yes. I've been hearing all about this. And I will say, so I have not watched her show. I've not read her stuff. I don't really know anything about this except what I've gleaned secondhand from the culture. But I, I sense that there is uh, inherent controversy and misunderstanding about her whole thing. But basically what I gather is that she's for sort of cleaning, cleansing your physical services surroundings and purging yourself of unnecessary unwanted objects. Yeah, that's that's my understanding. A lot of people have been watching her Netflix series Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, which mm-hmm. which was of course released January 1st, 2019, clearly aiming for uh, New Year's resolution-minded folks. Uh, and she uses what is what she calls the KonMari method, which is said to be inspired by Shinto principles about the spirit of things in one's life. And yeah, the basic idea is Throw out the stuff that isn't necessary and doesn't, uh, I believe the quote is, spark joy. Oh, yeah. I've heard yeah. all about sparking joy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I you know, I, I see no problem with that. I, I, I like that idea. I like to try and limit the clutter in my own life. And if something isn't making you happy and it's a physical object and it's not necessary, it's not holding up a bookcase or anything or enabling you to make a living, like, well, what is it, what's it doing, right? Well, and I also certainly think that, and I I think I'm sometimes guilty of this myself, that uh, hanging on to lots of old objects and not getting rid of them can essentially be a way of avoiding processing and thinking about your own past. Mm -hmm. You know, like it can be a way, like if you've got stuff from previous years that you just know you're not going to use again, but you don't want to go through it and see what you need to get rid of. That can often just be because you don't, you know, you're kind of afraid to sit down and think about what's been going on in your life. So, like, you don't do it. Yeah. Uh, or one of my favorites is when you find a box of old stuff that is quote unquote meaningful, mm-hmm. but you forgot you had it. You haven't right. like looked in this box in years and you ask yourself, like, uh, like this stuff was dead to me. 
and I have brought it back to life by finding it, maybe it should have just stayed dead. Sometimes dead is better, right? <laughs> this wise man once said. Uh, so, you know, not to spend a lot of time on uh, Marie Kondo, but I imagine with with her work, yeah, you're going to see people who really dig it, who really get enthusiastic about it, people who have a lot of problems with it, people who try it and experience success, and people who try it and find that, well, here's another self-help um, guru whose advice has not fixed my life. And I think that's part of the course with, with most teachings uh, that are aimed at, uh, at, at, at in, in changing the shape of your life. I guess the more uh, religious way of thinking about it would be that these objects have like a, a spirit to them or a spiritual energy. Uh, you, uh, you obviously don't have to think that there is such a thing as a spirit in an object to recognize that objects have significance. Right. You know, the objects around you, you they, they trigger certain like cascades of memories and, and, and reactions and emotions. And so in a certain way, they, they can sort of have a spirit even if they don't literally have a soul. Right. It's something that, that we have clearly projected uh, through our own imaginations, our own memories, and even just through the, the like the nature of of building, being a tool building and tool acquiring and object acquiring species. Yeah, I mean, is there any other species that acquires objects in the way we do? I mean, you could think about like uh, birds that build, you know, bowerbirds bower building, birds, yeah. yeah, building nests with uh, with strange, attractive objects. But there is really nothing like us. In terms of uh, all the objects we we bring to surround ourselves with. Now, you might think about a lot of those objects as like, well, that's because we are, you know, primates with tool-using intelligence. And most of these objects are tools that we've figured out how to use. But uh, most of them you don't ever actually use. They actually are more like the bowerbird. You know, most of them are not your kitchen knife that you use every day. They might be a tool that could maybe do something, but you never do that thing or you never use them. So it is more like you're just building a nest with strange bits of string and tinsel. And it's not even attracting a mate or keeping your <laughs> yeah. mate. In, in, in a sense, you're collection of bobbleheads or your like grandfather's collection of bobbleheads, whatever it happens to be, like something you even have, you don't even have direct emotional attachment to perhaps. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's no longer winning you mates. It may be getting in the way of your relationship with your existing mate. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it's, it's this weird byproduct of uh, the human experience. Yeah. Of course, then again, we, we have a very complex way of appreciating our aesthetic surroundings and some of these artificial objects we surround ourselves with are part of that. So I guess I walked in here wondering if I was going to have a take on the like whole uh, like purging all your unwanted old objects thing. I don't have a take on it. I guess I, I, I just am going to say do it if you want to do it. <laughs> well, uh, There's my boring pronouncement, folks. <laughs> well, uh, here, here's a definite fact. Marie Kondo was not the first individual to say, hey, uh, it's a new beginning. Maybe I should throw a few things away. Right. To think that the new year is a time to exercise old demons, whether metaphorically in, in the modern age or quite literally in the mythological uh, context. That's right. So in this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, we are going to we're going to continue to explore these themes, and in doing so, we're going to waltz between Chinese and Japanese myths and legends. And first of all, we are going to meet a demon slayer. I love a good demon slayer. Yeah. So this is going to be what Buffy? No, no, no. This is uh, the, the true fact. Uh, Buffy did slay demons in addition to vampires. Right. Most know her for the vampire thing. I guess it looks better on a, a calling card. Uh, Most but, of the interesting ones were more demon than vampire, I think. Yeah, the, the vampires became less essential as the series went on. But uh, but no, we're talking about uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, demon slayer, demon queller, demon defeater, exorcist of all time. Demon uh, eater. Demon eater, yeah. <laughs> Ghost banisher. Uh, demon eye gouger. Yes, eye gouger. He was a man, a spirit of, of many skills. Uh, we're talking about uh, Zong Kuei. The Demon Queller from uh, from Chinese legend and mythology. There are a lot of fantastic paintings of Zhang Kuei uh, that I have found all over the internet. There's just a rich artistic tradition with this guy who's got this severe face that's sort of part of his mythology that he's kind of like like nasty looking in the face, but yeah. that he's this real old tough guy with a beard who's usually found commanding a troop of demons to do his will. Yeah, he's he's kind of a Vulcan figure to a certain extent. Yeah, and he's he's often kind of like this squat, 
maybe slightly ugly or outright disfigured individual. The depictions range from him just looking like a, an eccentric um, – like middle-aged scholar mm -hmm. to looking like an outright like troll with like red or dusky skin, you know, like he, it, it varies a lot. Sometimes he's kind of serene seeming. Sometimes he is accompanied by demons. Other times he is like actively, uh, perpetrating violence against the demons. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in a procession of demons as if on parade, sometimes being carried in a sedan chair by demons. Yes. So uh, I actually – so there are different versions of the story about him. Different, yeah, I Different think so. details regarding – With uh, conflicting details Conflicting sometimes. details about you know, how he came to be, what his role was, who tasked him with this role. Well, tell me one version of the story, Robert. OK. This is the, the first version I, I came across in a book of Chinese mythology. So the, the idea here is uh, during the 8th century – uh, Emperor Ming of Tang, who lived 685 through 762, uh, an historic individual, suffered a fever one night and was assailed by a rampaging demon dressed in red trousers. And the, he asked the demon what its name was, and the demon said, my name is, quote, emptiness and desolation. Oh, that's good. And the emperor was just powerless to stop it. You know, he's just still suffering under this fever. It's this demons running around like cat in the hat, just messing everything up. <laughs> uh, I think in some other tellings of it, it's running around with a flute and a purse that it has stolen from the emperor, mm -hmm. which I think is a, a nice wrinkle and everything because here we see the introduction of objects, uh, objects with uh, some sort of value or, 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 or spirit to them. So who will come in to save the emperor from this horrible ghost-like figure? Well, the emperor calls for his guards, of course, but you know, that, that doesn't do any good. I, I don't even think they, they show up. Instead, what happens is a great frightening apparition storms into the chamber dressed in tattered robes and a torn bandana. It grabs this red demon up, crunches it down into a ball. <laughs> like cartoon style. Nice. And then swallows it whole. Whoa. And then the spirit introduces itself to the emperor as Zong Kui, uh, the soul of a talented scholar who committed suicide after failing to achieve top honors in the public examinations. Uh, the public examinations would have been, this was like the test to determine like where you were going to be professionally in society. So like if you get a good score, you would get some kind of good position in government service. Yeah, exactly. So it was a huge, huge deal. Not, mm -hmm. No minor test. Okay, so he he fails in achieving the score that he was going for. And different versions of it uh, play this differently. And some, I, he is kind of cheated out of top scores. Yeah, I think I read one where he did get a top score, but then something bad happened to him anyway, right? I think like, there's a version where the emperor at the time uh, made fun of him for his physical appearance. Oh, and yeah. And that led to the despair that ends in suicide. So there, yeah, there are different versions of, of exactly how it goes down. But – in all of them, he ends up uh, uh, dying the death of a suicide and is, uh, and is this reduced to this you know, wraith-like form. But uh, here, here's the important detail. Since the imperial family had shown him honor and buried him in green robes like a member of the imperial household, despite his shame, he'd sworn to protect the emperor and his successors from the demons of despair. Okay, so you've got this beyond-the-grave demon fighter figure who's paying back the debt of his honorable burial. Right. Yeah, you have a vengeful ghost who kills demons, kills rogue spirits, uh, and, and essentially is the, the – I've seen him described as the immortal exorcist nice. of Chinese mythology. And so the emperor in this case, in this story, ends up putting up a, a picture of him to honor him and to invoke his presence over any, you know, rogue spirits that might mess with his demeanor. And so this hanging up of a picture of Jean Cui does sort of become a tradition, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Generally, you know, by doorways. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he's this tragic figure, clearly talented and driven. Uh, and again, the, the details vary depending on the, the telling. In one of them, uh, I ran across, so he, he dies and uh, he ends up in, in, in the ten hells of Daiyu where the ten Yama kings reside over the dead. And here, the lords of the underworld recognize uh, Zhong Kui's potential and they offer him the position of king of ghosts, Whoa. thus tasking him with policing unruly spirits and demons, which I think is a pretty awesome origin story as well. Yeah. 
And in fact, I, I like that one more because it's, you know, the, 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 the agency here is not with the emperor, but with the, the lords of hell. Right. Yeah. They're like, hey, look, we got some spirits out here, some demons. They're giving uh, the ten hells a bad name. I actually need you to go out and police them one by one. Like that's a whole, that's a TV series right there. Like he's a cowboy or he's like a, an outlaw who's given a bounty to go collect or exactly. something. Exactly. Yeah. I, and this type of figure, um, I, I feel like this does, this trope does show up in in even modern fictions. Uh, certainly there are plenty of, of modern fictions that actually use Zong Kui uh, as, a, as a title character. You will find Zong Kui to this day in Chinese uh, television shows, movies, I think I saw there was a video game. Apparently video games, the opera, uh-huh. um, et cetera. So he's he's no minor figure as we'll continue to discuss. So but basically he's roaming about out on the land, uh, putting down rogue spirits and ghosts and demons. Oh, yeah. He's putting them to the sword. He's uh, he's gouging out their eyes. There's there's a, a, a painting or a tradition in paintings that show him gouging out the eye of a demon. So he's pretty ruthless. He's a frightening uh, figure, uh, you know, and again, there's a long tradition of having like a frightening figure to frighten away the demons and the spirits and and all the malicious uh, uh, unseen entities that might mess with uh, with your health and happiness. Well, and and he is he is one of them. So he's like a, a figure, a legendary figure embodying the spirit of apotropaic magic, the magic of warding off evil spirits and and curses and stuff. Exactly. Now, as you mentioned earlier, not only is he happy to to quell and uh, and slay and sometimes uh, mutilate and eat uh, the the demons that are uh, running about, but he'll also bend them to his will. He'll make them serve him, uh, carry him around on a litter, for example, mm-hmm. um, as well as his sister, who in in the tellings, uh, uh, he's his, part of his gratitude to the emperor is uh, uh, is uh, is betrothing his uh, his sister to the emperor, I believe. So you end up with these illustrations such as the, the Gong Kai scroll from the late Song Dynasty, which depicts Zong seated in a litter, carried, and the litter is carried by two male demons, while another litter is carrying his sister, carried by two female demons. And then you have two demon attendants carrying a dog, a package. Uh, all in all, it's an 18-demon servant entourage marching across this scroll. And there are also seven smaller captured demons, some uh, trust up or in one case imprisoned in a jar. Oh, like an octopus filling a beer bottle. Yeah, so he's not like if in a sense he is like the original ghostbuster. Uh-huh. But he's not content to just shove the captured ghosts into the containment unit. No, he is here to to make all the slimers and what have you uh, carry him about and and aid him in his ongoing war against uh, the demons. This is an awesome scroll by the way. I mean, I mentioned earlier that there's a really cool artistic tradition, and this is one great example. The demons, though, so they're doing his will, but often the demons also appear to be kind of having a good time. Like, they'll be jumping about and doing cartwheels and sometimes playing instruments, maybe. Yeah, there is there is definitely a sense of a, of a parade to what we're seeing here. And it's a type of parade that, to, certainly to Western audiences, it instantly makes one think of these Krampus parades that uh-huh. one sees, where you have both um, good St. Nicholas marching through the street, but also the unruly or slightly unruly Krampuses. And indeed, uh, that, that actually is a, there's actually a, a strong comparison to be made uh, between these two when we start looking at some of the associations uh, that Zong has with New Year's exorcisms in Chinese tradition. Oh, yeah. So we started with the idea of the Lunar New Year and uh, with uh, exorcising the old. So how does Zong Kui tie back into that? Obviously, I can begin to see the exorcism part. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so I, I have a, actually a wonderful um, passage here I want to read. This is from a late 13th century description of festivities in Hangzhou from Wu Zimu as quoted by Sherman E. Lee in an Artibus Asia um, article from 1993. Quote, On the 24th day of the 12th lunar month, regardless of poverty or wealth, all prepare vegetarian food and sweet dishes to sacrifice to Zhao, the stove god. On the market streets are poor beggars, three to five men in a company, costumed as the figures of such as spirits and demons, Pan Guan, Zong Kui, and his younger sister. Beating gongs and striking drums from house to house, they beg for money. The end of the 12th month is termed uh, Chu Yi, 
the eve of change. The official and commoner families, whether of great or small households, prepare wine, sweep the gates and beams, remove the dust and dirt, clean the halls and doors, change the door guardians. Door guardians are... uh, uh, or a tradition uh, in Chinese households where they'll be uh, on the doors or by the doors, uh, you know, guarding the household. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, uh, one has seen uh, Santa Claus when when transferred into modern uh, Chinese holiday traditions. Mm-hmm. Santa Claus has sometimes been utilized as twin uh, door guardians. Wow. And hang pictures of Zong Kuei. So again, help, put, up, put up a picture of Zong to help uh, keep the bad spirits away. And the, the passage continues. In the forbidden interior of the imperial palace, a great exorcism is carried out and a demon-expelling ceremony. Face masks are placed on the head and clothes and costumes with multicolored embroidered designs are worn. Hands grasp golden spears, silver halberds, painted wooden knives and swords, multi-hued dragons and phoenixes, and many-colored flags and pinions. And for amusement, the musicians are costumed as Panguan, Zongkui, Zhao Yun, etc., from the forbidden interior, the drumming and blowing begin, and the exorcism of evil spirits proceeds out the Donghua Gate and goes around Dragon Pond Bay. So, this is this in a nutshell. You know, it, it throws in a number of different um, uh, New Year's traditions in in Chinese culture, but also there is this sense of of the parade, the spectacle, uh, and uh, people embodying themselves in a kind of a mummer's tradition as uh, the spirits, spirits and demons that are serving uh, Zong Kuei or even Zong Kuei himself. But also the idea of linking the new year with a type of exorcism and purging ritual. Exactly, yes. You know, and uh, Zong remains an important part of Chinese New Year iconography. You'll see him in parades, certainly as ceremonial uh, wall hangings as well. And uh, again, he remains a popular figure in Chinese opera, TV, movies, video games. For instance, there's a 2015 film titled Zong Kuei, Snow Girl and the Dark Crystal that centers around our demon hunter. I assume it's a different dark crystal than... Correct. No relation to Henson at all. But I bet if you had a Gartham infestation, he would get him right out of oh, there. Oh, yeah. He could clear some Gartham right out, sweep him right out of, the, out of the tomb. All right. So thus far, we've spoken mainly of Chinese mythology. But the interesting thing about uh, Zong Kuei is that he travels. Uh, he travels eventually over into Japanese traditions as well. Uh, as do depictions of demon and spirit processions. In Japan, he's known as Shokai, and the oldest images uh, date back to the 12th century. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to pick up with Japanese traditions and another take on uh, harmful spirits and things that need to be expelled uh, in order to, st- to have a new beginning in your life. All right, we're back, and we return to Japan. Yes, it is time to take a look at another Lunar New Year-related spirit exorcism and and cleaning up tradition uh, that also ties in with demons. What a wonderful confluence of concepts. (laughs) And who could be surprised that we're brought back to our old friend, the scholar Noriko T. Ryder, whose work on the monsters of Japanese folklore and literature we have cited multiple times on the show in the past. Oh, yes, we've dealt with what giant spiders, the, the kappa. yeah. She wrote that paper on the uh, the transformation of Oni from uh, from monstrous and diabolical to cute and sexy, oh, which yes. we talked about in, uh, I think, an October past, maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah, I'll make sure to link to that episode and some of these other uh, Lunar New Year-related episodes that we've recorded in the past on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Now, I want to look to a book that uh, Noriko T. Ryder wrote called Seven Demon Stories from Medieval Japan from uh, the University Press of Colorado 2016, where she discusses the tradition known as the Tsukumogami narratives. And I'll explain what those are in just a second. But the Tsukumogami are attested in old illustrated scrolls with uh, some with unknown authors and there are multiple versions of this story that are reproduced across different sources but Ryder writes that due to an aristocrat's diary entry uh, about one of these stories from 1485 we know that the scrolls telling about this stuff emerged no later than the late 15th century. So definitely by late 15th century Japan, you've got these stories of the Tsukumogami, which are 
tool specters. Ooh. Yeah. The, uh, so the idea of tools coming alive can be found in stories from as early as the Heian period, which is 794 through 1185, but they first get their common name, the Sukumogami, later in the medieval period. And one particularly prominent story of tool specters is the Sukumogami Key, the record of the tool specters, a text which comes from sometime in the Muromaki period, uh, 1336 to 1573, as we mentioned a minute ago, definitely no later than like the 1480s. So you might wonder, what are tool specters? Well, I think we should turn directly to the Sukumogami Key to get the full story. So this is uh, going to be uh, – I'm going to be summarizing and quoting from Ryder's full translation of an illustrated scroll of the record of the tool specters from uh, the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies published in 2009. So the scroll starts off by discussing a Japanese ritual known as the susuhorai, literally the sweeping soot, which is this year-end house-cleaning ritual. And according to this tradition, every year, people bring out old tools and discard them in alleyways before the change of the new year. And the author of the scroll extends this concept to, quote, renewing the hearth fire, drawing fresh water, and renewing everything from clothing to furniture at the new year. So we're seeing a few parallels and similarities some of, to some of the Chinese Lunar New Year uh, uh, rituals we were just talking about. Yeah, related to the, the, like the physical cleansing of the space of, uh, of your home. Uh, and in doing that, also the removal of uh, you know, negative spirits. And on the, the idea of removing old tools, I, I mean, that, that, that is a, that's something that I think uh, speaks to everybody. Like, what is sadder than an old unused tool in a drawer, you know? Like a pair of rusted uh, um, hedge clippers that are no longer even functional, but you still have for some reason. Uh huh. Yeah, that's like yeah. Throw it in the alleyway. Be gone with it. Oh well, you still have them in case you ever need props for like a, a saw sequel. I guess yeah. They're they're shooting the at your house, and you you know so they're like, oh, where are the rusty tools? And you're like, hold on, I got this. Yeah, that or you open a Cracker Barrel, right? <laughs> you know, there are always two <laughs> options. Like, what should I do with all this junk? Is it a Cracker Barrel or a Saw movie? Uh, which one is is in fashion at the moment. Or if uh, the things you would be throwing out are like old road signs and alligators with sunglasses and hats on, you could open up a early 2000s Chili's. Oh, there you go. I would I would love to hear from anyone out there who, who has some some hard facts on the, uh, the the business of repurposing junk as uh, as decoration in restaurants. Oh, I've noticed they don't do that as much these days. If you go into a Chili's nowadays, the walls are very clean. Oh, yeah? I don't know how that happened. I, I, I have not been in one recently. Like, that's my other theory is that we just simply don't go to restaurants with junk on the walls anymore, <laughs> you know? Okay, but let's go back to the the ritual, uh, the yearly ritual of the sweeping soot, the susuhurai. Why this yearly ritual? Well, the author of this uh, medieval scroll says, well, originally, some scholars assume this to be based on like people emulating the extravagant wastefulness of the rich. But the author of the scroll says that this tradition is now known instead to be rooted in the avoidance of mischief and misfortune from a class of demons called the sukumogami. In explaining this, the author relates a legend supposedly from an ancient Chinese text called Miscellaneous Records of Yin and Yang, and writer notes that if this text exists, we don't really know anything about it. Uh, so according to this legend, any common tool, container, or instrument essentially gets granted a soul on its 100th birthday. Oh, wow. And after that, it becomes a type of sentient trickster demon that you don't want in your house. It's interesting. It's almost it, – it, it makes sense, right? It, it sounds like after 100 years, if you've had an object that has been around for an entire century, it's probably picked up a number of different associations. It has its own personal history. Mm -hmm. It has perhaps, uh, you know, been shadowed by the death of a previous owner. Uh, it's taken on a life of its own. I mean, we see this to a certain extent with um, – the consideration of like buildings and, and whatnot, right? When uh, when a when a building or a location is old enough in, uh, in in various countries, certain new protections kick in. Like it is no longer treated like a a like just any other building. Now it is an historic building. But to a certain extent, we kind of think this, right? When we yeah. when we look at an item, we're like, oh, I can't throw that out. That's a hundred years old. It has a soul now. Well, yeah. I what mean, kind of jerk would I be? Exactly. We we do think this way. I mean, obviously, we're we're not 
literally advocating the idea that objects have souls, but they gain something, and the something is in you. It's in your brain. Right. Like, you can't stop thinking about all the other hands that touched this thing and what it was used for. I mean, there's a common thing about, like, to get rid of the things that were owned by, say, an ancestor of yours might make you feel like you're making your ancient ancestor more dead or more gone. You know, Mm -hmm. you're erasing their legacy or something. Absolutely. And of course, we have we have so many different horror stories and ghost stories that revolve around this basic concept. And speaking of, I know there has to be a story here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this particular story, in the record of the tool specters, it starts with a bunch of tools getting thrown out in the trash during the Susu Harai one year, the, the, the yearly uh, sweeping of the soot, the yearly cleansing. And so this group of old tools gather around after they're thrown out, and they become really angry about how they were mistreated. They say, quote, We have faithfully served the houses as furniture and utensils for a long time. Instead of getting the reward that is our due, we are abandoned in the alleys to be kicked by oxen and horses. Insult has been added to injury, and this is the greatest insult of all. Whatever it takes, we should become specters and exact vengeance. Ooh. And I've got I've added an illustration here of a meeting of all the tools hanging out uh, but beside a tree. We've got like a uh, it's hard to tell what a lot of those are. There's obviously a Buddhist rosary, and there's something that looks like a whip. Yeah, something that looks kind of like a footrest or a side table. There's something that looks like a plunger. I don't think that's what it is. Anyway, so one of the discarded tools was, as I just mentioned, a, a Buddhist rosary, and it was called Ichiren Novice. And uh, the Ichiren Novice counseled against vengeance, saying that, well, our our karma probably earned us the fate of being thrown out, and we should instead turn the other cheek. But the others do not like this, and the dis- there was a, there's one discarded tool, which is a club, uh, the discarded club, which uh, Noriko T. Ryder translates as Rough John. <laughs> and Rough John insults the Ichiren novice and beats him within an inch of his life. Oh. I guess he beats him with himself. I guess so. So the rosary doesn't die. The rosary escapes with the help of his uh, disciples. I guess he's a Buddhist teacher rosary and he's got disciples. Uh, but then uh, there's another discarded tool. This discarded tool is an old scroll named Professor Classical Chinese Literature. <laughs> um, that's – I don't know that. Maybe could have a more creative name. But uh, I bet there's probably a pun in the original language there. I bet so. There's something lost in the translation. Well, Ryder mentions that this thing is full of puns and wordplay, mm-hmm. that a lot of it just doesn't come through in the English. Right. But so the Professor Scroll addresses everybody with a plan. He says, quote, The beginning of creation is chaos, and there is no form for humans, grasses, or trees. But because of yin-yang energy and the heavenly furnace, things are given temporary shapes. If we chance upon the art of yin-yang and heavenly craft, we, inanimate beings, will surely be given souls. Aren't such stories as the old pebbles talking and Mr. Goose turning into a carriage? And Ryder mentions that nobody knows what that means. (laughs) Testimony to the transformation of beings at the time of yin-yang change? So let us wait for the Setsubun, which is the Lunar New Year's Eve, when yin and yang change their places and shapes are formed out of entities. At that time, we must empty ourselves and leave our bodies to the hands of a creation god. Then we will surely become specters. So the eve of the Lunar New Year comes around. And the tools do what the professor advised them. They empty themselves, and the creation god uses its power to change them into vengeful specters. Quote, Some tools became men or women, old or young. Others took the shape of demons or goblins. Still others became beasts such as foxes and wolves. These various shapes were indeed fearful beyond description. And I've got another image here of what they look like once they're transformed. And and this is where we begin to see these uh, spirits take on the the often common, uh, kind of uh, comical appearance that you see in these uh, various uh, yokai paintings. Yeah. You know, where you'll see this weird spirit that looks like an umbrella, that sort of thing. Well, it's interesting the way you see this mingling of sort of like this comical trickster thing with this horrible, violent, malevolent spirit thing. They, they seem to exist right alongside each other. Like mm-hmm. it's not like a demon is either just funny and playing jokes on you or it's like eating you and kidnapping your children and boiling them alive. It, it's doing both. Right. 
So after this transformation of the the spirits, uh, the the reign of terror really begins. So they go in and out of the capital city, taking out their anger against humans of all kinds. They steal animals and eat them. They kidnap humans and eat them. They're invisible, so the people don't really have any way of protecting themselves against them except for prayers. And so the tool specters have a fabulous time exacting their revenge. They hold banquets and festivals around uh, around their tricks and, and their their vengeance. They have dances, they have drinking, poetry readings, and eventually, quote, building a castle out of flesh and creating a blood fountain. Damn. So things are officially out of hand at yeah. this point. They they are talking about <laughs> and building things out of flesh and making blood fountains. Yes, and that's all it says about that. No no <laughs> further commentary about the, the flesh castle or the blood fountain. Uh, but this all comes to a head when the the tool specters attack a prince regent's party as it's proceeding through the streets. And the prince regent repels the tool specters with the help of a magical amulet. And this leads to a long section. The the story in, in terms of just scroll length is not nearly over by this point because it gets into all this involved stuff about the imperial powers invoking the help of Buddhist religious leaders to summon spirits known as the divine boys to banish the Sukumogami. And then after the Sukumogami are defeated and humbled by the divine boys, the tool specters convert to Buddhism. And after that, the scroll descends into this highly didactic parable about religious doctrine, about like attaining Buddhahood and the virtues of specifically the right kind of Buddhism, which is Shingon esoteric Buddhism. Uh, like the the scroll is 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 sectarian. It's working hard mm-hmm. for the Shingon sect uh, with the tools all repenting and joining up and achieving Buddhahood through their devotion to the Shingon program. And it kind of reminds me of like those Christian apocalypse movies that have a three thriller plot about the Antichrist early on, but then the last 20 minutes is just a sermon about full immersion baptism. Yes. Yeah, I know exactly the, the sort of thing. It's like going to a haunted attraction, a haunted house. Yeah. And then after it, after you get out of the house, you you have to listen to a sermon. Like the plot kind of stops. And you and, realize what this whole exercise was really about. Yeah. Or at least what paid for it. But I think that the tool specters part is not incidental to the religious message because it actually does make a theological point. I think basically it's saying, hey, if even beings who are non-sentient tools can achieve enlightenment through the awesome power of the Shingon esoteric Buddhism, think what a human could do. That's right. Yeah, if this you know umbrella or you know discarded uh, uh, shovel, if it can essentially gain a soul – and uh, and achieve uh, um, uh, Buddhahood, uh, then then certainly a human can do that as well. Like you already have a, this a tremendous advantage over uh, a pair of uh, head shears. Yeah, and actually in her book, uh, writer goes on to talk about like the traditions of. Uh, there's the, this is not the only story like this. There's this whole tradition of non-human things attaining Buddhahood. You know, this is fascinating because, uh, especially given we're talking about Japanese traditions here, uh, there is a, a Japanese wrestling promotion, professional wrestling promotion called DDT. And uh, <laughs> they have one championship in the promotion. I think mm-hmm. it's their like their hardcore title. Um, and it started off with just various people holding the belt, but then various inanimate objects begin to win the championship as well. Like I think a ladder has won the championship. Whoa. I think the championship itself won itself at some point. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I can't remember the entire um, uh, you know lineage uh, there, but, uh, but I wonder to what extent that plays in with these traditions. The idea that an inanimate object – can can achieve something with its spirit, with its soul, then of course it can also win a championship professional wrestling belt. Yeah, despite the fact that this scroll descends into like making theological points, there's clearly like that kind of cheekiness about it. Mm-hmm. Like the the author of the story is having a lot of fun, and and writer, as I mentioned earlier, points out that there's a lot of there are a lot of like puns and wordplay that don't come through in the English version. Right, but that it this is I think supposed to be entertaining and funny. Like it's a little bit absurd the idea of like a club gaining a soul or like a, a you know the rosary having disciples and mm-hmm. all that, but that it actually does end up being part of the theological point that's being made. So it's that that sweet spot that's mixing, like, is it absurd just for comedy or is it actually making a point? It's kind of both. Yeah, yeah and it can be difficult to, to really judge outside of its language or outside of its time and culture. 
Now, as for the idea itself, Ryder points out in her scholarship that the legend of the Tsukumogami does not come from this story. Rather, this story was created as an entertaining vehicle to sell the virtues of Shingon Buddhism to a wide audience by capitalizing on the pre-existing belief in the Tsukumogami, which is just this popular folk idea that tools must be discarded before they become too old and gain a soul and start getting up to no good. Uh, and so in the record of the tool specters itself, it almost seems a little bit backwards, right? Because the tools somehow already seem to be sentient, at least by the time, like right after they get thrown out, then it's the throwing out that causes them to want revenge on people and become monsters and build the flesh palace and the blood fountain. When originally the tradition is that the throwing out is what's supposed to prevent this, right? right. The throwing them out is what's supposed to keep them from becoming vengeful spirits that, that mess with you. So the mythology in this one particular scroll seems a little uh, – I'm not sure what the order of causation is here. But I, I'm captivated by the idea of like wanting to get rid of household items for the fear that they become endowed with a soul and do harm to their owners. Well, I mean it comes back to to some of the basic Buddhist ideas concerning attachment, right? Yeah. Uh, um, and having too many – too many things or, or, you know, physical things or non-physical things in your life that you are uh, shackled to in one way or another, you know? Uh, and you can imagine it coming to the point where you essentially are in a household where the items no longer serve you, but you serve them because they all have taken on a life of their own. You know, I did not think at all about the parallel to the idea of attachment in Buddhism. I, I don't know how that went over my head, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like part profound insight on the nature of suffering and attachment and part Brave Little Toaster. Now, what's the deal with the Brave Little Toaster? You don't know the Brave Little Toaster? It's a children's book. It's a children's movie in which household items have uh, – they're, they're, they have human-like characteristics and they get abandoned in an old house and I think have to journey across the wilderness. It's like Homeward Bound except instead of like dogs and a cat, it's a toaster and a lamp and a radio. Huh. Well, you know, this makes – this, of course, reminds me of Maximum Overdrive. Mm -hmm. The Stephen King film. I wonder to what extent Maximum Overdrive <laughs> is a treatment of these same ideas. <laughs> probably we not. might be reaching <laughs> probably by the reaching. time we get there. Yeah, probably reaching, probably reaching after the Maximum Overdrive uh, content here. All right, let's take a second break. And when we come back, we will talk a little bit about the idea of anthropomorphizing objects. All right, we're back. You know, I joked about Maximum Overdrive, but <laughs> as I've mentioned before, Maximum Overdrive is a less ridiculous film the more we, um, we imbue our, our daily objects and our vehicles, et cetera, with, uh, with, with some level of gadgetry, with uh, internet connections and human voices. Right. And in a sense, the internet of things is kind of like a – we're filling our objects with more uh, unruly spirits or opening them up to malicious spirit um, possession. Well, that's an interesting idea because I actually – so I want to look at uh, a study that sort of puts together a framework for thinking about when we anthropomorphize a non-human object. So, of course, anthropomorphization or anthropomorphism is when you attribute human characteristics, thoughts, feelings, or tendencies to non-human objects. So this could be to animals mm -hmm. or it could be to robots or a computer or even just like a, you know, a coffee mug. Right. Yeah, you put a smiley face on a coffee mug and you're going to be afraid to shatter it because you've given it a face. You've given it some like just slight sliver of human identity. Yeah, and tons of studies have shown that we are we are so bad at not doing this. Mm -hmm. Like we we really just give ourselves over to anthropomorphism very easily. It takes almost no work at all. Once people get a Roomba, they essentially think about it as another person that lives in the house. Right. It's I mean, it, it we are this this is just an absolutely insanely weak point of entry into our brains. This is how the Skynet, uh, the anti-Skynet resistance defenses get penetrated. You just barely ask people to think of a machine as human and they'll do it. And it's an interesting question to think uh, like, 
what the adaptive value of that kind of like broadly inclusive idea of humanity is. Because on on the other hand, you often just – it seems like people are way too quick to dehumanize each other, real other humans, right? Right, yeah. Uh, you know, you don't like somebody for some reason and you start thinking of them as not really human and yet, the, you know, the Roomba bumping into your feet is like that's a person. Yeah, we can be so selective about it when it comes to other humans and, and uh, categorizations of humans. But yeah, when it comes to – household items, we can just fall down this well of, uh, of of placing way too much value on all of our possessions. Yeah. Now, I wanted to look at one study that, uh, that, that just basically put forward an interesting three-part framework for thinking about the conditions under which we anthropomorphize objects. So this was by uh, Epley, Waits, and Capoccio in Psychological Review in 2007 called On Seeing Human, a Three-Factor Theory of Anthropomorphism. And basically, I'll just do the short version. The authors here put forward a framework that suggests people are more likely to anthropomorphize under certain conditions. Like you don't always anthropomorphize everything equally. Certain things are more likely mm-hmm. to get anthropomorphized and and certain things make you more uh, – increase your tendency to do so. So one of the things they put forward is, uh, quote, the accessibility and applicability of anthropocentric knowledge, elicited agent knowledge. And this just means like when you can think of ways that this object actually is like a person. So like you can identify characteristics that are in some ways actually like what a person is like. Like if there is an object, even if it's a garbage can, that appears to sort of have a head or it sort of has two feet. You know, or or the way that uh, two screws are holding uh, like a coat rack on the wall, it may look like those are eyes. The second is, uh, quote, the motivation to explain and understand the behavior of agents, which uh, – or they call this effectance motivation. So essentially here, this is just like when a thing's behavior is confusing to you and you're trying to understand why it's doing what it's doing – under that condition, people start thinking of the thing as being like a human because they're tr- they're trying to find some avenue to explain behavior, and that's like the easiest thing to go to. It's a poor carpenter who blames his tools, and yet at the same time, <laughs> right? That's exactly what we're talking about here. Well, yeah, it's like when your computer is screwing up and you don't know what's causing it. Like you can't actually troubleshoot it from a mechanical point of view, mm-hmm. so you just start attributing malice to oh, yeah, it. Like, ah, oh, what is this computer doing to me now? Yeah, yeah, it's it's. Actually Acting up, it is. Uh, it is. It is. It is. It, it takes on this malicious spirit. Yeah, and this is actually a useful way of thinking. I mean, this is uh, this is uh, in Daniel Dennett's terms the intentional stance. Like, if you can't think of why something is happening from the physical stance or the design stance, like you can't actually get into the code and troubleshoot your computer, you just start thinking about it as if it has intentions, because right. that's the the only level that you're capable of accessing. Right, and I basically think about printers this way all the time. I just, I, I, I I'm just a step away from just assuming that there is a malicious spirit that resides in every printer. And then the third motivation that they posit is the desire for social contact and affiliation, which they call the sociality motivation. And this is when people feel they need social contact and relationships. When you're, when you're feeling lonely, when you're feeling a desire for stronger social bonds, you are more likely, they hypothesize, to anthropomorphize non-human objects. And then there were some follow-up studies, actually, uh, one by uh, Epley, Achelis, Waits, and Capoccio in 2008 in Psychological Science uh, that essentially it, it tested out this question about loneliness and anthropomorphization. So they took gadgets like an alarm clock, an air purifier, and so forth, and asked people to rate how much they saw human qualities in these objects, like uh, questions that would suss out, do you think it has feelings? Do you think it has intentions? And they found essentially that the lonelier you are, the more likely you are to anthropomorphize non-human objects. And uh, so that is one of the, you know, that's one of those kind of like social science studies, like, huh, I wonder if that could be replicated. There is a replication of it uh, from 2016 by Bartz, Chalova, and uh, Finerci. And so this was also in psychological science. It replicated the last study with a larger sample. They also found that that this is kind of interesting. So people who are more psychologically lonely are more likely to think that inanimate objects have 
have intentions and thoughts and stuff. But if you just ask people to think about a close personal relationship with someone that they could depend on, that caused people to anthropomorphize gadgets less if you just spend a minute thinking about that relationship and that person. Interesting. And then I just want to read another quote. Quote, last we showed that attachment anxiety, characterized by intense desire for and preoccupation with closeness, fear of abandonment, and hypervigilance to social cues, was a stronger predictor of anthropomorphism than uh, loneliness was. This finding helps clarify the mechanisms underlying anthropomorphism and supports the idea that anthropomorphism is a motivated process reflecting the active search for potential sources of connection. So we know that it's extremely common to, to sort of see a spirit in inanimate object, even if you rationally know that, you know, there's no reason to think that this old inanimate object from my house, this old gardening tool or whatever, actually has a soul or a spirit or anything magic about it or thoughts or intentions. We, we have this tendency to see it that way, to think it has maybe bad energy that needs to be gotten rid of or good energy that needs to be protected and preserved. It, clearly, this energy is in us. It's in our brains. But this is this this is a powerful feeling that lots of people share. And this seems to be one thing that could be going on when we project intentions on objects this way. It's not just about the object itself. A lot of times, it's about what we need socially. Right. And so you could you, you can you can have these in, in situations where if an individual doesn't have enough like personal connections in their life, it. it it makes them more susceptible to the sort of the siren song of the the spirits in their possessions. Yeah, and you can see it going both ways, right? Like mm -hmm. you could see it uh, if people are more likely to anthropomorphize objects, inanimate objects in a friendly way when they're more lonely, you can see how like having fear about loss of social connections, this attachment anxiety kind of state of mind could make you more likely to want to not let go of things, to keep them because mm -hmm. it would almost be like if you let go of them, it's more like losing friends or like losing pets. Right. And so certainly I'm not going to be the, the person to say, uh, oh, throw your dolls away. If they're making you happy, you know. Oh yeah. I mean, if it's if it's like helping you cope with say a you know, kind of a lonely time in your life, or just helps you cope with loneliness in general. Life can be lonely. It's all right to have a few bobbleheads around. Yeah. Well, I mean, another thing that's clearly coming through in these studies is that loneliness is not an objective state; it's a subjective state. Mm -hmm. Loneliness does not go away if you just actually physically have people around you. Loneliness depends on how you feel about your relationships. Right. You know, I want to actually go back to Noriko T. Ryder for a minute in her uh, Seven Demon Stories book because she she has a long section in that book discussing all kinds of interesting ideas about the uh, Sukumogami. But one of the things in there is the idea of, like, where does this come from? Like, what's the possible origin of the tool specter's belief? And one of the things she points to is um, the possibility of uh, this belief coming from rituals in which an evil-possessing demon is exercised from a person and deposited into a physical thing. Oh, and she gives an example of uh, records about this type of purification ceremony that, quote, was held twice a year in the imperial palace when the emperor, empress, and crown prince transferred their impurities as well as the accumulated impurities of the nation into five bamboo scales, swords, and a pot into which they breathed. These agomano, things into which pollution, defilement, and crimes are transferred for a purification ceremony, were then to be thrown away in the river or on riverbanks. The discarded agomano, paper dolls, jars, and whatever was used for the purification ceremony, were to be abandoned with people's breath and impurities. These abandoned objects may have been thought to contain evil spirits and to act vengefully. Again, tools and utensils used in rituals seem to have had a deep relationship with the formation of Sukumogami beliefs. Interesting, okay. So this is tracing it back to like uh, a, another sense of purging, like that not only do you purge bad old objects to get rid of them and get their, you know, get the spirit that you've imbued them with out of your way, that there are like literal rituals where you purge the badness out of yourself, mm -hmm. you put it in a physical inanimate object, and then you get rid of that object to take it away. It's sort of a classic type of like the a sort of version of sympathetic magic, you know, where you're like you're transferring something to something else by touch or by ritual breathing or contact, and then you purge it. You get it out of your surroundings, and it takes away the bad stuff with it. 
Oh, yeah. Kind of like writing a nasty email and then deleting it instead of sending it sort of thing. <laughs> kind of like that, though. I think I've I've said on this show before that I, I have mixed feelings about the virtues of venting, actually, like yeah. expressing your frustrations to get them out. I feel pretty convinced that sometimes enumerating all your frustrations with a person does not actually make you feel better in the long run, does not improve your state of mind, but can actually tend to make you just feel more frustrated, like, mm -hmm. you know, listing all the things you're mad about. It might be good to, like, have somebody sympathetic to talk to about your frustrations, but but I, I have seen lots of cases in my life where venting that was supposed to help somebody feel better makes them feel worse and just makes them make themselves matter and matter. Yeah, it can just kind of get you riled up and, and then there's no real way to shut it off. It, this, this all does make – like we're talking about kind of like literal um, ways of venting and, and releasing here. Uh, I'm trying to think if there are any modern, like secular or even just Western traditions that really entail this kind of – like the, uh, the, the, the sympathetic magic of taking – uh, the bad out of you, putting it into, into something else and then discarding it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder if this is the, this is the kind of thing that more secular people could benefit from without having to literally believe in any sort of magic to just sort of enact a psychological drama. Yeah. That where uh, where you like take all the bad stuff out and you put it in an object and you get rid of that object. If even even though you're not believing that this has literal magic power or there are souls or spirits or ghosts or anything like that, that doing the physical ritual does something healthy and healing to your mind. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and to a certain extent, various like self-help scenarios, you, you you are dealing with a spirit, and the spirit you're you're, you're kind of trying to exercise is yourself, mm -hmm. in the sense that you're trying to become a new person. Uh, you know, we've talked about on, on on the show before, like how you know how ridiculous that may seem, because we are always becoming a new person. We right. are essentially we're we're a different person now than we were earlier this morning. We'll be a different person this afternoon. But we're also creatures of habit. Right. And we tend to do what we've done before. And we mm -hmm. tend to think what we've thought before. And without uh, without some kind of uh, rupturing of those habit cycles, without something to, to come in and force a change of routine, we will just tend to do the things we've done before. And sometimes those things are, are things that make us feel bad. Right. And then, of course, if we're trying to change our routine – it, it's uh, I've often seen it pointed out that it's easier to change your routine if you are, say, on a trip. You, you know, you mm -hmm. go on vacation. Suddenly you can, you know, for any number of reasons, you can do things you don't do in a, in a typical week. But sometimes, like, just having a different physical environment allows you to break some of these habits that you've kept before. Yeah, and, and, in, and a in, physical ritual could be like that too. Right. And certainly changing your immediate physical uh, circumstances, you know, purging yourself with various items – could give you the advantage that you need in creating some new uh, habits in your life. You know what? I started at the beginning saying I don't have a take uh, because I've never watched the Marie Kondo stuff or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe I'm coming around. I think through this, the course of this episode, I've talked myself into the idea that maybe – like changing your physical surroundings, purging yourself of old items that, that you don't actually need anymore or have in a metaphorical way become imbued with some kind of bad spirit that's the associations in your memory, mm -hmm. that could actually have a really positive uh, impact on your life. Maybe people should try it out. This episode is not paid for by the Marie Kondo show or anything like that, by the way. No, no, not at all. But speaking of Netflix, they've got Marie Kondo. Okay. It's a, it's a hit. Uh-huh. They have the Sabrina uh, show uh, where she fights demons, and it's a hit. Okay. They need to bridge these two. They need a show in which Marie Kondo physically battles demons. She goes to people's <laughs> house, to, houses to help them deal with their clutter, and then uh -huh. she physically battles the, the spirits of these items with a sword, gouges their eyes out real, real good. This proposal is definitely sparking some joy in me. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm with you here. But in any case, yeah, I, I've been brought around. I think whether it's a Western-style New Year's resolution, whether it's a, a ritual for Lunar New Year, or whether it's good old-fashioned spring cleaning, I think maybe maybe some good physical environment exorcism is actually a healthy thing to consider. 
All right, we're going to end it right there. But if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. That's where you'll find links out to our various social media accounts. That's uh, where you will find our merchandise store where you can buy some cool shirts, stickers, throw pillows, etc., cetera, uh, with our logo or some cool designs on it. Uh, if you buy something there, that's a cool way to support the show. If you want to support the show uh, even in an even more essential way uh, and in a way that doesn't cost you a dime, just rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And subscribe to Invention. That's right. Talking about the, the importance of things in your life. Where do those things come from? Who invented them? Who uh, improved upon the designs? And then how did they change our lives? Why are we so resistant to throw them out? Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, with a suggestion for a topic on the show in the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.